be with you all, um, to be able to share with you God's word. And again, just a, our time of fellowship. Again, we're longing for the time and, um, when we can do this all in person. So, Carla, let me use this time to do a short recap of what we're trying to accomplish um, as we go through this series in Nehemiah, the unchanging God in, in changing times. And I just wanted to kind of, kind of give a bit of an outline of hopefully what we are looking to build within ourselves over this time. And so when we think of this title and what it means, there's a possibility that we only capture part of its implications. We may see an assurance that God will be faithful to uphold me even as everything else around me is radically shifting. And that is obviously true. We are indeed casting ourselves upon the rock, as it were, the rock that is the Lord, the rock that is um, unchanging. But, or however, as people in relationship, or as some would say covenant with this unchanging God, there is also an implication that our relationship with him will not lose its consistency as well. One might even expect that consistency may need to develop at a pace in order to keep up. And so there might be more for us to do. So as we look to this relationship that we have with this unchanging God, we may very well have, in the times we're living in, have to shift and change the way in which we relate to him as well. I want to start with our text today before I, I, I go in. And we're going to be reading a section from Nehemiah 6 right through to Nehemiah 7, verse 4. So I will be reading from the ESV, but please follow in whatever translation you have. <coughs> and when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our, of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in, although at, to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sambala and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hafkorim, Hafkepharim, in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that while you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us counsel together. And when I sent to him, saying, No such things as you, have, have been, have, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. 
for they all wanted to frighten me, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, son of Mehetabalil, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what such as I could do as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to those things that they did, and also the prophetess uh, Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the war was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elhu, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehonanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam and the son of Berechiah as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanini and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been built. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray before I, I jump in. So, Lord, again, we are thankful that your word has come to us through the ages, Lord, and has been delivered here to us, the Lord, so that we don't merely have a historical record, Lord, but we also have a testimony that we who live, Lord, in similar times, challenging times, will also be encouraged by those things which you have done in history. And we will know that, Lord, again, as the title says, that the unchanging God who stood with, again, stood with Nehemiah, stood with Ezra, also stands with us today as well, as we face the challenges of, as it were, remaining faithful to building your kingdom, 
building a place there, Lord Father. Again, we know it's not with bricks as such, but with the people, Lord. Lord, as we faithfully try to bring this together, Lord, even as we do so now through the digital airwaves there, Lord God, we ask there, Lord God, that you help us, Lord God, to realize that you are indeed among us, that you can indeed do a speedy work if needs be. But that, Lord God, even those who would oppose us, even those who would challenge us there, Lord God, again, you've given us the confidence to be able to say, I will keep faithful, I will keep my hand on the plow and do that which God requires me to do and not allow myself to be distracted. So, Lord, as we look to do this, and, Lord, look to your word to find strategies of how we can do this, Lord, we pray that your spirit will come and indeed fill our hearts with a zeal to do all that we need to do in order to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. It being Valentine's Day and all, it would be... um, remiss for me not to kind of make some note to it. And I was thinking of the song as I, um, title was coming and, you know, those of you who know the old crooner songs may remember this song, that you're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody cares. You may be king, you may possess the world and his gold, But gold won't bring you happiness when you're growing old. The world's still the same. You'll never change it. As sure as the stars shine above. You're nobody till somebody loves you. So find yourself somebody to love. It's a great song, isn't it? But I want to add to that today, and my title today is that you're nobody to somebody hates you. I want it to be punchy, and I want it to make us alert, because even as we look at this day and we think of how important it is for us to have somebody to love, I want us to remember that also when it comes to standing for something, it also might be important to realize that you may not be anybody, you may not be recognizable until somebody hates you. Hates you for what you stand for. You know, today we have polarizing figures, none more so right now than Donald Trump, who, depending on which person you ask, will be either lauded (coughs) as a breath of fresh air in a stale system, or derided as a delinquent maniac corrupting a cherished system. Whatever your opinion may be on Donald on Trump and similar figures, it is nonetheless notable that people in general will try hard to avoid being a controversial person. Some may even insist that in order to be a respected Christian, you must toe the line and blend in with the values of the majority. But this is what we see in scripture about the prophets and the apostles and the Messiah even. When you look at Moses and Korah, Elijah and Jezebel, or Jesus and the religious elite of his day, you have to come to a conclusion about who was in the right and who was in the wrong. 
In this sense, what you're opposed to is just as important as what you stand for. In many ways, even in a more contextual sense, in order to understand who Batman is, you really need to see him against the Joker. And that's the, that's the image we're playing with right now. That's the, 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 the ballpark, I believe, that we're dealing with. Let me show a, a share a few scriptures again, which again highlight this whole idea of what it means to be hated. Luke 6.26 says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. John 15, 18 to 20 says this, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Can you imagine a relationship that is so tight, yet it is possible for one of the persons in that relationship to be hated and the other loved? Think of somebody you've been close to. And that person being hated and that person and, you know, all the people outside of that relationship kind of look at you and, oh, I like you, but I don't like that guy. Now, you might say, well, yes, of course that's possible. But it would be at the cost of saying that it's possible because they do not share the same values. Yeah, you're different, you know, you're not like them, they might say. But then it raises the second question of, well, then are they really close if they do not share the same values? To some extent, it doesn't mean that they, they say and believe, um, articulate everything, but our values are core principles in which they govern. To some extent, if you don't share that, as Jesus was pointing out in John, 6, in John 18, that in order to be like him, that you're, you're close and your, your association is so close that they will also hate you as well for the same reasons. But those who love you will love you again for the same reasons they love Jesus. Today we will see that those who are opposed to God's work of restoring Israel or Judah were also opposed to the man God had employed to carry out his work. So looking at blocks of the text, again, we're trying to go through the highlights of Nehemiah. So obviously we're going to, um, again, we're going to be skipping um, much of, of the rest of chapter 4 and, and going to be moving on to chapter 8 next week. But we want to do an overview that hopefully is helpful. And the first nine verses talk about a blackmail plot, a blackmailing Nehemiah. They send an open letter. This is an open letter for those who don't know. It's just a letter which anyone can read. You know, we see open letters today where obviously somebody might deliver the, the letter personally to the person that they want, but they also make it available for everyone else to read. In other words, there are copies made and distributed, maybe even like a pamphlet. Who knows? 
and people, other people can read it. Now, this is a particularly devious tactic as it seeks to also leverage the people, that is, to, to motivate them to put pressure on Nehemiah in order to respond. So when they see the charges and when other people are reading it and they're aware that um, this, this is going to happen, that all of a sudden the people will be tugging at Nehemiah's cloak and saying, well, what are you going to do about this? You know, we can't just sit down there and do nothing. You know, you've got to go out there and do something. Well, you know, we, we don't want the Persian army to come and surround us and take us a drag. This will all have been for nothing. And again, you can see the type of pressure and panic these guys were trying to cause maximum disruption. And their safety also would only be secured if Nehemiah could stop that letter being sent to the king. However, Nehemiah calls their bluff. He doesn't go. He tells them he's busy, which obviously was true. And remember, he also knows the king. He has a personal relationship with the king. And he's prepared to wager that the king will not believe their word above his. The real goal appears to be getting the work to stop so that the project suffers from a loss of momentum. I want to introduce an application early here because it will help us to understand what's going on. Even if someone cannot stop the work, a plan to cut the momentum can be equally devastating. Rebuilding enthusiasm can be tough and discord can be sown between those who want the work to continue and those who want to express caution. When we are certain God wants to do a work, we must be unwavering in our commitment and not be like Israel when they lost the momentum for the conquest of Canaan. I want to take us back, and again, I, I just want to kind of pad this illustration up a little bit more and its application because, again, in Numbers 14, I won't read all of it, but I want to read a, a small excerpt. But the context is that, obviously, after the spies come back, and two give, obviously, a good report, and another, the others basically say, well, look, this is quite a difficult task. You know, we've got to be very cautious here, because going forward could be difficult. And it, cost, and it could cost us everything. And so, ultimately, because it gets all the people murmuring, they suddenly decide, well, you know, let's probably not do it then. And then Moses ultimately comes and says, fine, God now says, let's go back into the wilderness. We'll turn back and we'll go back. And again, this generation will have to perish before we try this all over again. And in, in, in Numbers 14, this happens in 39 to 41. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. Because obviously they don't want to go back into the wilderness. That's equally uninviting. And they rose early in the morning and went to the heights of the hill country saying, Here we are. We, are, we, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised. For we have sinned. 
But Moses said, now why, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when you will not succeed? The momentum was lost. They did actually try to invade the land. This small band of Israelites, they, they tried to go in off their own strength because they said, oh, well, you know, uh, maybe we'll try it now. Um, you know, sorry, we lost our, we got a bit scared, but the command of the Lord had already gone that you have to change course now. But all of a sudden, they found courage, but it wasn't real courage. It was fear of going back into the wilderness, and they didn't succeed. They got chased back. People lost their lives. The momentum to enter in had been, got, had been lost. And another opportunity will not come for another 40 years. That's why when I say that the momentum, cutting that momentum can be devastating. Just as much as stopping the work altogether. Even to have that pause where we're like, oh, let's be cautious. Puts us in a place where we're on the back foot and we can't recover. If we cast our minds back to Nehemiah 1, we will recall how Nehemiah was shocked and devastated that after the exiles had been in Jerusalem for over a hundred years, they had still not rebuilt the wall. What is the point of Nehemiah going back just to become another governor bogged down in the conspiracy and the politics of the region? Nehemiah saw through the smoke and mirrors and would not let the people lose the momentum that could have set the project back another hundred years. It is not always wise and good to take our time. Moving on, from 10 to 14, scaremongering. What, a contemptible, what is contemptible about this next plot, about getting profits and such involved, is that the plot is from the religious community now. And is in the form of completing a religious act which, however, is unlawful for Nehemiah to do, which is to enter into the temple. So it is a plan to discredit Nehemiah before the people and, the dis and disrespect the Lord in one act. So you can cause him to lose his face before the people, which is exactly what the text says, and also lose his integrity before God. The use of the prophet in this section as part of the conspiracy would make us aware that those who occupy offices among the covenant community are not always above contempt. I want us um, to read again another short excerpt. Again, just want us to do, go through the Bible and look at the text that hopefully help us to understand how these things pan out across God's word. In 1 Kings 13, there's a text about a young prophet who goes to Jeroboam to prophesy against his, his basically his pagan acts of setting up calves 
for Israel to worship. And he prophesied against them. But the Lord gave him strict commands. He says, go to Jeroboam, give the prophecy, and go back to Judah. And don't ever, don't sit down, don't go to the left, don't go to the right, but come straight back to Judah and do not fellowship with any of these people. An old prophet stops the young man and hears about what he's done in the capital, Samaria, and told Jeroboam. And he sends out his sons, and he, or he sends out and he goes out and he stops the man. He tells him, you know, God told me that you need to come back with me because I'm just so excited about what you did. And, you know, you could imagine, you know, this old prophet who was sitting in a, in a pagan kingdom was, was probably relieved, maybe, to see somebody who was faithful. And he overrid what the young, the young prophet said. He says, don't, don't worry, God has told me that you can come back with me. It's fine. So as this young prophet is sitting at the table with this old prophet, he says this. So reading from 1 Kings 13, verse 20, and he says, As they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord! Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall come to the tomb of your fathers. And after you had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back, um, prophet whom he had brought back, and he and he went away, and he met a lion, and met him on the road to kill him. Sorry, the lion met him on the road to kill him. And his body was thrown to the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, the man passed by and saw the body thrown. Men passed by and saw the body thrown to the road, and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. You know, one of the, the details of that text is that the donkey and the lion sitting next to the body and the donkey, the, the lion is not attacking, the donkey would have spoken clearly to people that this was a judgment of God. The lion sitting there doing nothing to the donkey would have spoken, wow, this is a supernatural act. What's going on here? This guy had died by the hands of God. Not by the hand of the lion or the mouth of the lion. We have no shortage of people who will willingly lead people astray and, when in, and then in the same breath condemn them for the very act in which they encouraged. That's the type of world we're living in right now. And if you're not aware of it, then you need to open your eyes. Moving on. Verses 15 and 16. The dejection of the enemy is in the success of God. <clears throat> so all those who had been part of the conspiracy to block the work of God in rebuilding Jerusalem had lost when the wall was finally built. What is notable is that their own self-esteem was tied to Judah's failure or success. What a wicked thing to have 
one's happiness and contentment be reliant on someone else's downfall. What a wicked thing. When, when, when my esteem, my desire to feel good about myself is rooted in someone else not succeeding. When they succeed, I'm downcast. When they're failing, I'm happy. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased. And turn away his anger from him. Moving on. 17 to 19. Fifth columns in Judah. A fifth column basically is, is it's like an old spy, spy phrase where... Uh, ultimately, you know, where, especially between nations that are hostile to one, to one another, whether that be in wartime or whether that be in peacetime, um, you know, like Russia and, and, and America in the Cold War, that would be a good example of, of people setting up fifth columns in a particular, even where there isn't war, so to speak. And then obviously, like in other wars, you, you, you set up fifth columns. In other words, there are people who are placed into a culture, into a nation, who, even though they are part of that nation, they are actually working for the enemy. So that's the fifth column. You know, so it's an old spy phrase. And so these people will give up intelligence reports or they will actually create espionage where they would um, maybe discredit people who um, the enemy fears, um, try to smear them so that they lose their job and they have to employ somebody who is less capable. But again, it does the work's enemy. So sometimes their work is incredibly subtle. Incredibly subtle. So that it ultimately, it might just be, like you said, just discrediting somebody who they want removed from a position because that person's on the ball. So fifth columns are no joke. And as you know, I mean, if you do not know, you know, the, 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 as far as I'm aware, and the law hasn't changed, um, if you're found as a traitor, given intelligence, uh, I, I believe that, especially in wartime, the, the, the penalty is still death. It's how serious people take it. It is one thing to have an enemy from without, Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, but it's another thing to have an enemy from within, from within your own camp. Traitors will always be amongst us, but being dedicated to finding and rooting them out is not to be our primary focus. What we should be focused on is the work of God. He already knows those who are his, and he also knows in an eternal omniscience. Like, Jesus knew who Judas was right from the very beginning. He knows also no defeat. This is our Lord. So why concern yourself about that which is already in the hands of the Lord? So often we can get bogged down in this whole thing. Oh, let's try and, you know, you know let's marginalize this thing, you know, and let's try to... No, we don't. We, why bother? Just do the Lord's work. And you will see 
who is for you and who is against you. 2 Timothy 2.19, but the Lord, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And then to our last section, chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. So the, 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 the walls are now built. And now their people have been appointed to guard in certain places. And then um, as Nehemiah sees his time, obviously his tenure there now done, the war is complete. That's what his project was. He now leaves other people in charge. He leaves his brother, what people believe is his brother, Hanini and Hananiah. And he says, and he, and he uses as a criteria that these people are faithful above many. So as he looks to go back to Persia, as he looks to go back to Persia, he now installs men that are faithful. I want to ask you this as well. Do you want leaders who will prioritize the mandate of God or the will of the people? Sometimes you cannot have both. If the people themselves have little motivation toward God, You know, a God-fearing leader is, is not a tyranny to people who are God-fearing. Because they're all going in the same direction. But this is the priority. Not someone who has, quote-unquote, the ear of the people, but someone who ultimately will listen to God. Kind of reminds you of David, isn't it? Here is a man whose heart is towards the Lord and not, as it were, a people pleaser. It should also hopefully lead us to the Messiah, the one who truly pleased God. Nehemiah's description of the city being empty and no houses being built helps to develop the plot of Jerusalem growing back into prominence. It's not, life is now coming back to it. Not having a secure wall was obviously a hindrance to the city being properly populated. But now that issue is resolved, the city set on a hill will again have its time to shine again. But when the Lord returns, will he find faithful people within its walls? Here we have the city is set. It's now built. It's going to get repopulated. And we know that by the time Jesus comes, you know, Jerusalem is a bustling city again. This project is only faithful, not only because it's only, it's only successful, not because it has a secure wall around it, but if you have God's people in it doing God's work. That's the true criteria for the city of God. Not that we've built great things. Not that we've done this and we've got this thing. It's now that we need to have faithful people populate it. As we look to application, Jesus had a mandate to create a safe place for his people to reside, which is ultimately his body. 
to be in Christ. And like, and even more so, Nehemiah, even more than Nehemiah, he suffered bitterly at the hands of those who were opposed to his work. You might even remember that Jesus also had those who were his disciples take on the task of the enemy in trying to stifle his mission. Looking at Matthew 16, 21 to 23, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So the repeated motif in the Gospels of Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem in order to take up on the cross is an important one because it was his goal. Even from the very foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8. There are some commentators who look at this text, Nehemiah that is, and argue, why didn't Nehemiah take more time to create better relationships with his neighbors? The problem with this assertion is that those small things suck the energy from the real mission. Remember the lack of progress? The boot-off leaders who sat on their hands for over a hundred years? We can end up trying to appease those people whose esteem is heightened by our lack of progress. And that is not a good trade-off. We are no strangers to leaders who act as fifth columns in their own nations, who are content to take bribes in order to hinder their own people's progress. Satan himself was prepared to offer Jesus Christ the world if he would just abort his mission. But Christ saw that it would have made him the poorest of all souls if he had done so. How about you? Are you concerned with the things that God is concerned with? Are you prepared to lay down your trowel in order to make other people happy at the expense of your own deprivation? I encourage you to keep up the good fight and not concern yourself with and be prepared to be hated by those who take no delight in the kingdom of God being established. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word in your season for your people, for your purpose to be prevailed. Lord, we know that your work will be accomplished. We know that your faithful people will arise and get the work done. And Lord, we know there are those who will try to make it difficult. But Father, you know who those who are yours. And Lord, we, we, we look merely only, Lord God, that we will do your work. 
We don't bother ourselves with trying to argue with people or, 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 or deal with people who have no desire to see that work continue. But that, Lord, we will concern ourselves with that which, Lord Father, you've given us to do. And we know that, Lord Father, if, if we don't do it, someone else will be raised up to do it. But nonetheless, the Lord, your will will prevail. We thank you, Lord God, for those like Nehemiah who, again, as it were, plowed through to the cause. Who would not allow himself to be sidetracked. Who, again, finished the work in record time because he saw the need, Lord God. He saw a hundred years already wasted and was not prepared to see another hundred years wasted while with people who care nothing for Israel and its progress. Lord, I thank you for this word, because it's a word in season. I know it, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, ultimately for the work of Christ. The work of Christ, Lord God, that again, that was plowed on. Even those, Lord God, who would oppose what he was, he, he was going to accomplish on that cross, Lord, nonetheless, he aimed for it, Lord God, even against his own comfort. And made it his goal. And Father, for it, Lord God, we have found safety in the new Jerusalem, in the new temple, which is his body. Thank you, Lord God, that that, that body is being populated well. And Father, we praise you, Father, that faithful people are found within it. So Lord, again, thank you for the city that you have built, which no, no army can oppose. No one can destroy. Let's just be faithful with making sure we do our part within it. This is our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.